Verse 16, Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And someone said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We'll stop right there, and we'll ask the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you again for another Sunday another opportunity with our Bibles open to be taught by the master teacher. Lord, make us good students. Lord, would you suspend distraction, give us focus to understand and then obey your word. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, everybody at this point and even now knows about Athens in one way or another. Uh, it was the birthplace of philosophical tradition. Uh, this is where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle came from. And to backtrack a bit to find out how Paul got to Athens, where is he coming from? We'll find out in time where he's going. But on his first missionary trip, and we'd studied this for some weeks, Paul traveled with Barnabas through Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. There were four stops. His second missionary journey, this is the journey he's on presently, he had Silas, Timothy, and even Luke for a time with him in various stops. But what's significant about what we just read is that Paul is now alone. And if you were making notes in Thessalonica, that's where Luke stayed, and the other two stayed in Derby. And Paul left in the night because there were trouble, uh, and he's on his way. And this isn't just 40 miles or so from one stop to the next. This is hundreds of miles all the way to Athens. And what we've got is a story uh, ripe for study, an apostle of Jesus Christ alone in a pagan city, and what does he do with his time? I don't know how you grew up, how you're... Families are structured every now and then. Because of work, Dad would need to stay behind, and we'd all go to the beach and leave him. Uh, Mom would usually put together all kinds of stuff for him while we're gone, and usually when we'd get back, it was all right where we left it. <laughs> He'd rather go to a restaurant, sit down, and somebody would cook it. He'd pay for it. They'd clean up. He'd go home. But you... you probably wonder there's some situations and many of you travel for work it's not uncommon now to find yourself in a city you've never visited maybe hundreds if not a thousand miles away from home and what do you do with yourself because you're kind of out of your element and this is Athens Uh, there really is no modern day equivalent Uh, 
But if you were going to make a story that people might want to read from its title or its subtitle, uh, you could just say something like, uh, the preacher's alone in Vegas. You just pick a weird city and try to, what's he going to do? Well, we're going to learn what he's going to do, and that's because Luke is going to tell us. And the way that we'll organize the contents of what we just read and then uh, a good segue into what will be next week's portion. First of all, Luke is going to tell us what Paul saw. And he describes Athens and its contents. There wasn't a lot said there, wrapped up in the first verse. But he tells us what he saw. And then he tells us how he felt about what he saw. And then by the time we're done today, we'll see what he did as a result of how he felt at what he saw, and then next week, we'll look at what he said about all of it. And that's really the good part. His speech at the Areopagus, where Socrates stood trial hundreds of years earlier. So today, what Paul saw, what Paul felt, what Paul did next week, what Paul said. So number one, what Paul saw. Look at verse 16 one more time. And now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked, well, that's how he felt, within as he saw that the city was full of idols. So there's the word saw. And what did he see? He saw that the city was full of idols. It wasn't but a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so, maybe two months. Time flies when you're having fun. We were all in here together, and we came across something that had to do with Greek mythology. And I gave you some homework if you felt deficient in pagan mythology in Greece. So I told you you could watch Clash of the Titans. There's two of those, an old one and a new one. Um, although that might be a little edgy for some of you, I gave everybody a safe bet. Uh, the Three Stooges meet Hercules, remember? <laughs> but they'll introduce you to these different gods and mythical beasts and, you know, Giants with one eye in the middle of their head, but two heads, and all this stuff that they've really made a big deal about. That is what Paul is looking at, but not just in any part in Greece, in Athens, which would be the epicenter of that whole thing. That is what pro provoked him within. He sees them as idols. So, what's being referred to is known as the Greek pantheon, uh, the gods of Olympus. Uh, inside the city of Ad Athens were numerous, or innumerable probably, temples, shrines, statues, altars built for the worship of gods made in the likeness of men. And we discussed that a bit too. It wasn't as if these gods revealed themselves to these people. These people made these things up. So these gods not only look like them, but to the power of deity. So whatever excess you see in Athens, the gods outran them, ran rings around them, however you want to describe it, but it got quite out of hand. Um, we're told that in the Parthenon, that would have been at the top of the hill. It's still there. You can look it up on Google. But what's not there anymore was this huge gold ivory statue of Athena, the god of war, and we're told that the spear, which was reflective, and if the sun hit it the right way, you could see it 40 miles away. That's how t 
tall many of these statues were. And this is made possible because the Parthenon was built on Athens' Acropolis. Here's another term. You can talk about this at lunch. An Acropolis is two words, acro and polis. Acro, you use in a word like acrobat, a person that spends a lot of their time way up in the air, right? It means height. And then polis means city. So an Acropolis was the highest city. They would always put the temples or the shrines. In the Old Testament, we, ref- we hear of high places being torn down or groves that were built on tops of hills with pagan worship that took place there. That's what's going on here. And it's at the top, so everyone looks up to this. Apparently, you could see it for a very long while. And then all around this were images of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, so on and so forth, the whole pantheon. And everybody and anybody that visited this town wrote about, sang about, painted the beauty of this architecture, architecture and statues. It was a wonder of the ancient world. But you've got Paul here who basically misses all of that. He says nothing. Luke doesn't say anything about the aesthetic beauty of this remarkable town, even though what they're making look so fancy and beautiful are false gods. What we're told from Luke, this adjective that's used here, isn't found anywhere else in Scripture or anywhere else in Greek literature. That means it's a rare word, and it's impossible to do a word study on this because there's no other places in Scripture to compare it to, right? But the word is interesting based on the components of it, words like Acropolis made out of two words. You've got roots and then endings and so forth. This one has a component which means under. So when Paul is describing the city being full of idols, that's the most used Term from Greek to English, but it's not as full as it could be. Think of it this way it's as if the town is under idols. The way you would say that, we would say that, would be it's drowning in idols. Or maybe it's uh, smothered with idols, would, would be a great way to use all that's within the word there. We have it's full, same thing. But he doesn't see beauty. He sees ignorance at best, rebellion against God at worst. But his soul is grieved. Uh, What they've done is they've projected lines of human personality into infinity by deifying basically their own values or lack thereof. Because they were fallen, basically they've created a pantheon of fallen gods. And they've totally, absolutely blown out the first commandment, (laughs) right? The second one as well. And the rest of them, likely. So what Paul saw caused him to feel, and that's in the next part, still in the first verse, verse 16. Luke tells us that Paul's spirit was provoked. Originally, the word had a medical association. It could describe a seizure, It could describe epilepsy, but the idea is that what's going on in one's mind and how you feel emotionally causes your body to react. 
That's not all that's there. It could also mean to stimulate, to irritate, provoke, or rouse to anger. All of that seems to fit. And even sometimes the word is translated jealous. We've gone through this before. What do you do with a a word that can mean so many things, but you find it in your Bible and you really want to know how Paul feels about what he saw? Well, what you do is you push the pause button, park the car, and try to do this carefully so we don't get it wrong, right? All the while we admit it's a very multi-use word. See if we can get close. I think the word jealous might be the most interesting out of it. Jealousy is usually looked at as being a, a bad thing, not a good thing, right? And if you got a Christmas card that says, uh, Merry Christmas, you jealous friend, you. It's right up there with uh, no milk for you, my lactose intolerant friend, Merry Christmas. I mean, it's just pointless cards nobody sends, right? Because most people think jealousy's bad. Jealousy does have a context. There's a definition for it, and in some ways it's used correctly. If you've got everything right, the best way I know to describe it is, say you've got a marriage, and then you've got a third party trying to insert themselves into that relationship. Does that marriage invite that third party? Uh, No. That third party is vying for the affections of one within that marriage. I remember uh, reading an article that went way back toward a court case uh, that someone had won. uh, had to do with a divorce, but the charge was alienation of affection. Someone came in and pulled the affection of this woman's spouse away from her. Now, that object of jealousy is called for. It has a claim on that relationship. The same is true with uh, our Father in Heaven. And in our Old Testament, it's very clear that often God is described as a jealous God, jealous toward His people and their idol worship of all things. And if Luke is using the same word used here, we don't find it in Greek literature, we don't find it in anywhere else in the Bible, but we do find it in Greek translations of the Old Testament, and it does refer to God's jealousy of his people who are cheating on him with idols, then I think we got a strong case that this is actually Luke's window into Paul's heart here. Easy enough to see God's indignation toward his people over their idol worship, but at the same time, it's easy to see his compassion as you read the story when he doesn't just explode them all after the hundred and first time, but he compassionately deals with them, reminds them of the covenant promises he has for them. So you got Paul in a city, beautiful to everyone else. It's an idol factory to him. He's upset about it but I think we're going to see his compassion too, as he doesn't just teach the people that are like him in the synagogue, but every day he goes to the marketplace and teaches them until some philosophers say, we got to get you over to the Acropolis. Um, Not the Acropolis. Yeah, the Acropolis. Um, We want to hear more about what you have to say. So what is he feeling? I think he's feeling correctly. What we see in God's attributes in the Old Testament 
Uh, it's the same with Jesus. He's full of both truth and tears, isn't he? I mean, when Lazarus dies, he weeps with these sisters. Other places, he's correcting their um, misunderstanding of what they should be doing. He absolutely destroys the temple and turns the tables over. But then we see him tenderly caring for those that are sick or spending time with a woman at a well and nobody else wanted anything to do with. We see it all there. And usually we're good at one or the other. Usually we're either good at indignation or we're good at uh, tears. But usually we're not good at both, are we? Uh, I heard somebody say this. I thought it, it fit good. About 98% of a Christian's expressions, as far as their Christianity goes, usually are either cowardly or obnoxious. Either they swing at something no one should miss, or they just keep swinging until everybody knows what a nut they are. Right? Go online. Listen to what people say who actually say they follow the guy who only lost his temper once because they needed it. Most of the time, he was under control, right? There are times for both. We need to have both. I think Paul has both because he's bothered, but he's also going to get busy teaching. Here's his strategy in Corinth. We'll get to this soon enough. But in 1 Corinthians 2... He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And he's in the city of lofty speech and wisdom, is he not? For I decided, so he's determined, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So there's his weakness, but there's also his courage. Speaking to them just about Jesus. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, he says again, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You're not going to be my convert. What was that? There's, there's also, I think that was Spurgeon. Somebody found a, a, a bum in a gutter somewhere, and uh, they said, we found one of your converts. And he said, obviously so. It'd been one of Christ's concerts, he wouldn't look like that. <laughs> but anyway, you hang around seminary long enough, you learn what all the preachers were said to have said. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Kind of like the what was the other one with him and Billy Sunday? And Sunday said he should quit smoking the cigar. And Spurgeon poked him in the belly and said, Say that again. <laughs> Probably didn't happen. But that's what he's said to have said. Moving on. There's one supreme example in Scripture, if you want to find, where love and truth mix, love and justice, uh, courage and compassion. It's Calvary. That's where God, who so loved the world, poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin that he promised way back in the Garden of Eden. But it didn't fall on the world who actually did the sinning it fell on the shoulders of his sinless son who died in their place. He's completely just, but he's compassionate and loving at the same time. 
So not only do we see this in God and see this in his son, see this in their plan of redemption together, but we see it in some of his men and we should see it in each other. It's both. So we know what he saw. We know how he felt. Well, what did he do? That's number three. And we know he's not just going to sit around. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So there's two things. Synagogue, that's with Jewish and, and some Greek devout converts. And then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So first, he went to the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews and God-fearers. This is the same as what we looked at last week. He reasoned with them. What do we talk about with reasoning? It means breaking apart the contents of the Scripture into its component parts and then looking at the parts and describing the association of one part to another, then putting it back together so that it makes sense, and then they have something they can work with, right? Don't you wish every church did that? Turn in your Bibles. Here's what we've got. Here's how it fits together. Now you know what it means. Go obey it. But that's not every church. A lot of churches are full of lofty speech and wisdom. Paul said, I'm not going to use any of that stuff. Sounds nice. Sounds pretty. But what do you do with it? Maybe it makes you feel better. But does it make you be better? Only Jesus can make us be better. We can't be better or he wouldn't have sent his son to die for us, to cure us of our can't be good sin nature. So remember that. He's going to just keep it simple. Reason with them. Uh, I'd written down here, most people who don't know this reasonable gospel, the gospel is reasonable, it makes sense, even logical sense. It's not just blind faith. There's a massive hook to hang that faith on. And we'll get to that in next week's message where Paul explains this unknown God to these philosophers. John Stott said, Many people today are rejecting our gospel, not because they perceive it to be false, which would be unreasonable, but because they perceive it to be trivial. They just think it's goofy. There's nothing there. That's why people get dressed up and go hang out together in a place like a church on a rainy day. But there's more to it than that. And Paul's not going to rest until they know more than just its supposed triviality. He takes it a second step. Secondly, he went to the Agora, the marketplace. I get the Agora and the Acropolis mixed up. But this is not on the Sabbath. This is every other day to talk with anybody that would listen. And if you see verse 18, there's, he's, Luke gets specific here. Some of the Epicurean and some of the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. What does this babbler wish to say? Preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, he gets an invitation to the Acropolis by this. But briefly, let me just tell you what's going on here with Epicureans or Epicureans, however you want to pronounce it, and Stoics. Well, the Epicureans held that pleasure was the chief goal of life. 
And that sounds like that could get out of hand, doesn't it? Well, traditionally, originally, it wasn't necessarily an unrestrained pleasure, but rather the best pleasure, the fullness of life according to a life of pleasure would be a life free from pain. Well, nobody likes pain. Disturbing passions, that's unwanted stuff that rolls through your mind. Superstitious fears. I don't know if they mean superstitious fears that aren't unwarranted. And then anxiety about death. That's universal. People still go a long way to rid their lives of all four of those things. But if you could do so, then the Epicureans would say you have a simply sophisticated life of pleasure. This way of thinking is also described in the Scriptures. Uh, again, it's nothing new. They just made it famous and their name and websites that sell cool stuff for people who think they are like that rather than Stoics. But uh, my favorite in Scripture would be the parable of the barn building fool. Y'all ever read Jesus' parable of the barn building fool? I didn't call him a fool. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll read it to you. Luke 12. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, which is interesting. Jesus is telling a story and we get inside information to the man's own mental monologue, internal monologue. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones And there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Here it is. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's right out of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The purpose of the parable is to say, hey, if you've spent your life stacking up pleasures and possessions, your life will end far too soon to enjoy them, and you can't take any of it with you. You'll be flat broke, spiritually speaking, because you've laid up no riches toward God. Paul knows that's a bankrupt philosophy, But he's going to have to talk to them about it later. That was the Epicureans. Then there's the Stoics. Their leading maxim was that man should live according to nature. Now, if you don't know much about Greek history, you're thinking, nature, what are they, hippies? No, not at all. Woodstock would have not happened with a group of Stoics, I promise you. Um, Stoicism was marked by moral earnestness. Virtue was the supreme good. Man should be above his passions. He should be unmoved by joy or grief, pleasure or pain. In other words, indifference was the key to life. Yeah, both these groups want Paul to come talk more about these foreign divinities that they heard him talking about in the marketplace. So Luke tells us that these philosophers conversed or conferred with Paul Same word used in the next chapter to describe Apollos greatly helping the believers in Achaia. Look at that as we get to it. But it seems like they're trying to help him. We'll help this guy out. And maybe the word they used, babbler, is kind of a nice way to say poor guy. 
He needs some help. His philosophy is a little jumbled up. If you take your Greek New Testament and find the Greek word and then find its definition, the word here describes literally a seed picker, which is a bird. The idea was he goes over here and gets a little seed. He goes over there and gets a little seed. Over here and gets a little seed. But really, he's just a fancy plagiarist who's taking everybody else's seeds but has no original thought of his own. That's, that's what they're saying. This, this babbler, this bird brain, seed picker, he samples a lot of stuff, but really it has no organization. Well, they're going to find out that that is false. But verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears. That means they haven't heard it before. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives us this editorial comment. Verse 21 is a good place to uh, stick your hinge for next week. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You ever been around a group of people like that? They're kind of... They just talk about everything. Have an opinion about everything. They think there's a way to do everything. It's kind of hard to spend much time in a relaxed state because you can't drive, you can't cook, you can't shop the right way, (laughs) right? This has got a whole group of these guys. And that's all they do every day. And really... This is the seat of traditional philosophy, but that was hundreds of years ago. Basically, the place by the time Paul is here is just a shell of what it once was. These are all old ideas. So if we were to try to take what was and then explain how that correlates with what is, you know, wasness in our Bibles to the isness of where we live, Today, the nearest equivalent to a synagogue, that's where Paul started, would be churches, a place where religious people gather for worship. An equivalent to the Agora, which was the marketplace, that's where he went next, uh, would be a farmer's market, perhaps, a city square, park, uh, downtown district, coffee shop, sports bar, student cafeteria, wherever there are people gathered where they come and go. But if you went and sat down and struck up a conversation, you wouldn't be run off immediately. It's not a private gathering, one man talking. It's kind of a, you know, I've, I've been into some of these coffee houses around here, which is weird. It's only by invitation because I don't drink coffee. Um, every now and then when it's really cold, I might drink some. And if I do, I drink it black, which is boring to those places. And I, I'll sit down and I'll wonder, now how do they make any money when all people do is come in for one coffee and stay for six hours? <laughs> I don't get it until I figured out what the coffee cost. <laughs> it's adjusted for, uh, you know, overhead and inflation all that. So maybe... He goes from the coffee shop to the actual uh, 
TED Talk or so. There's a place which might be an equivalent of someone speaks and everybody listens to hear what's new because they like to think through things. Other than that, though, the Areopagus, the Hill of Ares or Mars Hill, really has no equivalent in the contemporary world because there was dialogue there where the TED Talk is a monologue. And the closest thing, if you needed to pick, would be a university. I think anybody this day and age who's reasonable would say that long ago, American universities ceased to be an open market of ideas. Most of them, there is an agenda, and there are things that they consider so foolish they should never even be listened to, much less talked about. It, it's gotten bad, I, and, and history has its pendulum. I hope it swings the other way, but it's difficult to have an open forum. YouTube works. TED Talks work. There are other places where we can talk. Who's listening? You don't know. They're on the other end of an electronic connection. But I think the point that we can settle on before we wait until next week to see what Paul says is that we need a witness in all three arenas. What are those arenas again? Well, there's the houses of worship. There's the open market. And there's the university. And just to write down some to stimulate thought, we need authors, journalists, broadcasters, writers, content creators, producers, artists, doctors, lawyers, scientists, politicians, thinkers who will dedicate their lives, their brains, their hearts, their hands to Christ so that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ can be communicated over the gamut of means by which we communicate. We do communicate through art, through song, through aesthetics, through clothing. There's ways to speak. There's, there's ways to share this. Now, none of them are a replacement for the proclamation of the Scriptures, the things that Jesus left with the apostles who wrote down, and they've been preserved for us. To win someone of the Lord, somebody's got to do some preaching. But the rest of us can do a lot better job letting the rest of the world know that this is not some trivial matter, as Stott would suggest. All who would dedicate their minds, their giftedness to Christ. So we know what Paul saw. We know how he felt. We know what he's doing. And it's good enough to start asking ourselves the questions. What do we see? We know what the world sees in our culture. It's big bucks. Television makes a lot of movies. It's an interesting study to see how much of that is, is, is waning while other forms of media are raking it in. Where there are places all over the country, empty warehouses waiting on server cabinets to host more bandwidth. For you to flick through your electronic device with little things that last no longer than about four seconds. And if you hadn't done that yet, I don't want to say try it, but if you have, you might be shocked, as I was, to know how much time you can kill looking at other people do stupid things or smart things or crazy things or funny things four seconds at a time. 
There's nothing new under the sun, but we could do a better job if, if, if human beings can be pacified in four-second pieces. Surely you'd hope that they'd have four seconds to consider where we came from, where we're going, why we're here. You know, the big stuff that the philosophers say in the end we, 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 we can't say. Paul's going to say, you dummy. <laughs> He's been here all along, and everybody knows him. You've got an altar over here just in case. Well, let me tell you about the guy you've got an altar for just in case. That's next week. Don't want to get ahead of myself. Now, this not, may not be Athens, Fuquay, Verena, that is. But how do you feel about the stuff you see? How do you feel about the stuff you hear? You don't have to go out of your house or pipe it in through your electronic devices. But when the world sees beautiful, do, do we say we agree? Or is there something in our soul that says there's more about all this? This isn't all there is. And you can know this God. You can know him and he is real. Does it provoke us into action? I think it used to. You know, these days, when I was, when I was little, my dad used to talk about uh, church members who were on the, the every other week rotation. That's how we fit people in. Well, we have a crowd problem, so we shove Sunday school members in different classes, you know, and they watch by way of live stream. Um, but would you say that this is typical of churches? They, they need to stow people different places because they're too full? Or is it the opposite of that? What are we doing? Um, if we have the answer to life's most important question, how are we communicating it? These are good questions, I think, from the passage. When we see idols, America has enough of them. Does it bother us? Do we have any confrontation within us? Does it move us into action? And can we say at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month, or the end of our lives that we spend our time foregoing the fancy words of wisdom, but knowing nothing but Jesus and Him crucified, hopefully somebody to hear and obey and God gets the glory. So, we know what Paul saw. We know how he felt. We know what he was doing. What was he going to say? Come back next week. And we'll look. But with that said, let's just bow in prayer.